from KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. The list of powerful men accused of sexual misconduct continues to grow. On Monday night, we received a detailed complaint from a colleague about inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace by Matt Lauer. So how do companies, victims, and the offenders move forward? What we have is a crisis. This isn't sex addiction. Sex addiction isn't non-consensual. It's going to come back to haunt you. Experts in multiple fields weigh in on the pathway to change. He's been called the most progressive district attorney in the country. I have viewed this from the beginning as being a movement. Philadelphia's DA-elect lays out his transition strategy. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the growing list of powerful figures accused of sexual misconduct. The latest to take the tumble? 20-year Today Show veteran anchor Matt Lauer. The bombshell came this week. On Monday night, we received a detailed complaint from a colleague about inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace by Matt Lauer. Lauer, whose squeaky clean image made him the cornerstone of one of the most popular programs in America, was fired by NBC. His Today Show co-host Savannah Guthrie broke the news and was clearly devastated. I'm heartbroken for Matt. He is my dear, dear friend and my partner. Reports soon came that Lauer had sexually assaulted multiple women, allegedly exposing himself, offering lewd comments, and worse. He since apologized, writing, there's enough truth in these stories to make me feel embarrassed and ashamed. So now what? How do companies and complicit individuals move toward change? And can these men redeem themselves? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Brandy Stewart. She is the Director of Clinical Services at Joseph J. Peters Institute. We also have Greg Feistman, a professor at Temple University who is an expert in crisis communication and reputation management. And last but not least, we have Andrea Lawful Sanders, an education advocate with 15 years experience doing diversity trainings related to both racial and sexual bias. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start with Greg. Now, when you're an organization like a Weinstein Production, CBS News, Netflix, Def Jam, you name it, what's the plan for stopping the bleeding once you find out that somebody's accused of something like sexual assault? I think it all comes down to transparency. You have to be upfront. You have to have a culture that this is not tolerated, and you have to enforce that culture. You got to deal with employees. You got to deal with the public. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of elements here. There are a lot of elements. And along with that, if it's a publicly held company, you have investors to worry about. Obviously, you have law enforcement considerations. You may have regulatory issues. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator and the allegation. How do you even begin to deal with this? You've been working someplace and this has been going on right under your nose. Maybe folks know. Maybe they didn't. So, Andrea, they call you Mm because it's time to take a culture shift. Right. So they get training around the parameters that they can't cross or they shouldn't cross. And oftentimes when I go into these organizations, there's already this kind of stuff happening. Right. So you'll walk in and you'll see someone make a a crude joke, you know, while we're in the middle of training to a female employee and the female employee blushes and everyone looks down. 
So we talk about what that means for that person and how could they manage around all of that. Let's be very frank about this. Female employees who look forward to this so that they can move up the ladder, right? No one talks about that. Ooh. Happens quite a bit. The women who don't want to feel the pressure of being the lewd conversations or being touched inappropriately are also pressured not just from the men in the organization per se, but some of the women who are working with them that says, shut your mouth because it's how you're going to get your promotion. Wow. What we have is a crisis. It's a societal crisis. When you go, you delve into the mind of both the victims Mm -hmm. and the perpetrators. What are some of the considerations? There is no single cause to why perpetration happens. Um, I think how we need to look at sexual violence is we need to look through an ecological model. So we need to be looking at the individual. We need to be looking at relationships. We need to be looking at society as a whole, social, the social, political, cultural, environmental factors. All mm-hmm. of that plays into why someone might think, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we just look at this individual, we've lost a huge part of why our culture is where it is now. But I do think right now is the time to really start implementing these prevention programs. Um, we now have women who have reported, continue to report because they're empowered. Uh, the executives like NBC's news chief saying, you know, we need to really look at the safety of the environment and, our, and these behaviors that are so out of our core values need to be met with consequences. There's a lot of men whose head is on a swivel right now. Mm-hmm. They're really nervous. Maybe you did do some things that you know cross the line. How do you manage this? We shouldn't define this strictly along gender lines because, of course, there's male and female harassment, but there's male on male, there's female on female, and rare, but there are occasions of female on male harassment. In terms of somebody who's done something 15 years ago, three years ago, if there was a photo, a tweet, an email years ago, you have to understand nothing in cyberspace dies. It's going to come back to haunt you. Should you come forward or should you just wait to be accused? Obviously, every situation is an individual case, but honesty is the best policy. If you think something's going to come that's going to embarrass you, your family, your employer, you have to be frank about it. You have to be upfront. What do you kind of tell these folks? You know, if you were part of this, do you tell victims they have a responsibility to to do it? We talk to the employers and say you have to have policies, strict policies and procedures that are in place that you adhere to because they have them in writing, but a lot of the times they wouldn't follow them. And that they have to understand with the woman, I tell them, keep meticulous notes. That's why those things are coming out now. Make sure that there's an open door policy that someone can come to you and report it if they feel uncomfortable. We talk to the woman about their clear boundaries. You know, if they feel uncomfortable to say no, um, to empower themselves and to go talk to someone that they trust and to make employers and the employees themselves understand the ramifications of the whole organization as a whole. How do you sort of change these behaviors and how do people redeem themselves? Do they go to a therapist? What do they do? Treatment. They're not going to just change on their own. My ears cringe uh, when I hear the sex addiction. Um, This isn't sex addiction. Sex addiction isn't non-consensual. This is sex offending. This is uh, non-consensual sexual acts whether they be sexual harassment. So, yes, treatment. And treatment does work. There's lots of studies. Um, 2009, 2005, I can name sex offense-specific treatment does work for most. There's obviously these um, different offender characteristics that either fare better for treatment prognosis or not. Many of these men that we've 
just seen in the in the media probably have a personality disorder. There's probably some narcissism. There's probably maybe some antisocial traits. Um, that doesn't fare so well for treatment. The unfortunate part is, is they're probably not going to seek treatment until they get in trouble. Um, it's very rare that you're going to get a self-referral to sex offense-specific treatment. You have these folks being accused, and right now this is the shaming process. You're basically shaming anyone who is accused of this, but then... How long are you going to keep them shamed? Do they never work again? Do you fire them? Do you put them on probation? Do you, I mean, what do you do? It depends on the infraction. If you're caught in your office having relations with your secretary and the secretary didn't want you, it's a, fire, it's a fireable offense. Mm-hmm. What's happening now, though, why it's coming out as much as it, as it has, is that not only are women empowered, people are starting to lose money behind this. If we didn't find a way to clinch the money, with the act, we wouldn't have heard so much about this. But people are now very afraid. And women have stepped up and have become so empowered. Look at the last election, right? We are quietly moving forward and voting, right, and putting in people in office that's shutting some of this foolishness down. There's a lot of people involved in these sexual assaults. you got the perpetrator, you have the victim, and then you have the people around them, some of which were complicit in this. Well, that's why some of the bystander intervention skills development needs to be implemented across the board in every organization. Let's train them on that because you do. You have the – or the guy at the party that makes these sexual comments to somebody else and the friend standing there giggles. No, that's not what we teach. That's not what we think. That's not what society says is right. But let's look at Charlie Rose for a moment. At the morning show, if you watch the interplay between he and the female guest, there was a lot of titillation going on. And it's all about driving ratings. I get that. But when people see that on the air, that verbal soft foreplay, if you will, all of a sudden becomes acceptable. If they're doing it, then and they're getting laughs out of it, then it must be okay. Well, the producer somewhere should have stepped in and said, wait a minute, that is not acceptable for broadcast television. But people watch it because what are they going to say next? And, you know, so there is money behind this. The other part about money where companies are starting to take this seriously is they're scared to death of being sued. Absolutely. You know, so especially like a class action from all the women who felt uncomfortable. That's a motivation for management to take action. Yeah. And so that's sort of why they bring all of y'all in Mm -hmm. here (laughs) and they say, look, you know, this is what's happening. We need to fix this. How long does it take? This is not an overnight problem. How long before things shift? Change doesn't happen overnight. We already know that. And what we want to put things in place where people can slowly get to the point of going, you know, this doesn't feel right and I'm okay talking about it, or it doesn't feel right and there's someone that I can go to to report it. We also want to work with the people that have taken the pathway of doing what the men or the women in power required of them so they can climb the ladder. There's a level of guilt there and shame Mm -hmm. that never quite goes away. So there has to be a space for all of that to happen. All of us need to continue having the the dialogue because we have a commander-in-chief that says this is okay. And we always know that when people see what's going on at the head, there's always that shift is very hard to happen. But I guarantee you there are a lot of folks right now going, when is it going to be my turn? And who took a picture or who kept meticulous notes? People are that's scared. Going to come I, as I know be. people are probably, men and women, men and women. are probably, you know, thinking about it. And, and, and for the women out here or the men who may have been harassed, you don't even know if you want to even bring that up. You're like, look, man, this was five years ago. Mm-hmm. That's the other part of it. 
Everybody I talk to has a story. But the education around, if it happened to you, they probably have a number of other people that they've also perpetrated it yeah. upon. So, I mean, the, all of these that have come out, it wasn't a one-time event. Many companies have gone to online training. Is it effective? Is this one of the reasons why people... There you go. You're answering mm-hmm. your own question. Online training does what? If you're in front of people and you're working with them and, and can deal with the tangibles and the intangibles and to hear the stories one-on-one, it's, it's those emotional, it's the networking, it's the building of the relationship that creates change. I tell you, this is a fascinating discussion. <laughs> um, and so we're just going to wrap this up. Final thoughts on this. How do we move this thing forward? There are many employers that are aware of who their high flyers are. They need to start calling them into the office. What do we need to know? What have you done? What can we do to shift to get you some help, some support? And to help the victims that you, and depending on the infraction, make the hard choice of disciplining or firing whoever it is so that they're ahead of it. People need to be proactive and not reactive at this point. I think we start parenting and talking to our kids right away. Talk about gender inequality. Start from the bottom. I mean, let's start for next generation. We change policies, procedures, and organizations. We go forward, and we don't stop talking about it. Greg, last word. Keep the awareness going, but go beyond just making people aware. Start making the change. Be the change you want to have happen. Thank you to Dr. Brandy Stewart, to Greg Feisman, and to Andrea Lawful Sanders for talking about this flashpoint. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, Philadelphia will soon have one of the most progressive DAs in the country. We are going to have change, and there are people who fear change. Resumes are pouring in. Larry Krasner lays out his transition leadership team and next steps. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one issue that gets Philly residents hot under the collar is America's broken criminal justice system. It disproportionately affects the poor and people of color, but in comes Larry Krasner, a former public defender turned civil rights lawyer who was elected Philadelphia's district attorney last month, beating out Republican candidate Beth Grossman three to one. Larry, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been called probably the most progressive district attorney now, and you haven't even been sworn in. I have viewed this from the beginning as being a movement that has put in a technician to be the district attorney. And I mean that sincerely. I think the election results support that. The total number of votes were enormous. The number of votes who actually supported this campaign exceeds any other winning district attorney candidate in Philly for at least the last 20 years, including every single election in which Lynn Abraham ran. That's a movement. Every time I've seen you speak, you're surrounded by very diverse coalition of folks who support you. Um, what do you think sort of resonated with your with your followers here? And um, then we'll talk about implementing some of this over the once you get sworn in. Well, that coalition is the movement. I mean, that's, that is what I'm talking about, and I appreciate that you noticed that. The core message is that you should be treated the same, whether you're rich or poor, famous or not famous, and you should be treated the same regardless of background. That's not what has been going on. We've had a system that has systematically picked on the poor, and that has overwhelmingly picked on people who are black or brown. It's not fair. It's not effective. It does not support our freedoms, and that needs to change. 
Now, because you have not been a prosecutor before, the rumors have been swirling already. I have friends who work as DAs. Everybody's like, everybody's going to leave or or else you're going to go in there and fire everybody. How are you dealing with this? I mean, rumors are easy and they're fun and they're cheap. But the the fact is that the rumor that I was going to fire everybody was generated by my political opponent. I never said that. It was never our intent. And in fact, very shortly after being elected, I sent an email to all of the assistant DAs explaining that this process was going to be the routine and typical process where some people would be asked to leave if they hadn't left already. Others would be asked to submit a letter of resignation and permitted to reapply. And others would simply remain. This is exactly the same process that Josh Shapiro followed when he came in Mm -hmm. recently. Nobody said anything about it. It is routine. But yes, we are going to have change. And there are people who fear change. I saw that you guys have launched a website for the transition. The website, by the way, is krasnertransition.com. And we have at this point received a few hundred resumes, either from attorneys or for, from people who are looking for positions that are not attorney positions. And some of them are truly remarkable. We're getting them from all over the country. And this is really refreshing. It's really heartening because it's exactly what we thought would happen. There are a lot of people out there who want to be a part of a progressive district attorney's office. I've done a lot of stories on wrongful conviction and some of the um, issues that have happened within the Philadelphia DA's office over the years. And people have talked about the culture. How do you view the culture that currently exists? And do you have any thoughts about changing that? Well, I view the official culture as having been one where there was an effort to focus only on convictions and sentences, to get longer and longer sentences, more and more convictions. I think that was the official culture. There have always been individuals in that office who had a much smarter, broader view of justice and Mm -hmm. understood the actual consequences of an unnecessary conviction and an unnecessary incarceration. And thank goodness they're there. A lot of younger prosecutors there already and a lot of talent looking to be there who understand that already. But for those who don't, And I don't expect everybody to agree with me. I hope they don't all agree with me. Mm -hmm. We are going to provide the education and support. And if they are able competently through hard work to share in this vision, then we're all going to be able to move forward together. The FOP endorsed your opponent. You won. Now you're the district attorney. They they did (laughs) right after they endorsed Donald Trump. Yeah. Is there tension with the police now? And how do you plan on dealing with that? The Guardians, who are the Mm African-American organization within Mm -hmm. the department and represent a tremendous number of those police officers and are also members of the FOP because the FOP is the bargaining unit for them as a union. Mm -hmm. They endorsed me. The leadership of the FOP did the opposite. They like them some Trump and they don't like them some Krasner. Okay. Um, That's fine. They're entitled to that opinion. It just so happens that only 15% of the city of Philadelphia agrees with them on Donald Trump. And frankly, I think there's probably only about 15 to 25% of the city who agree with them on Krasner, if we are to look at the latest election Mm -hmm. results. I don't believe that that leadership actually speaks for the police department for a lot of reasons. One reason is I have a very good relationship with Commissioner Ross. I had a good relationship with Ramsey. I think these are modern competent, hardworking, effective police commissioners trying to do the right thing who have been hampered by not having a DA who had their back. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about that at all. Okay. And so let's talk about your transition. We are really excited because we have an awful lot of volunteers. We've actually had volunteers working on issues related to transition from early in the campaign because it really was an ideas-driven campaign. So what we are doing now is we are announcing 
some of the leadership of this much larger group of people involved in transition, and it's exactly what we want it to be. It mm-hmm. is a diverse group of people in every sense, in terms of ideas, in terms of experience, in terms of neighborhood, in terms of background of all types. It's a diverse group. They don't agree with me on everything. I certainly hope not anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do agree on certain things. We agree that we need to use creative solutions to achieve better results. We agree that that office is too important to continue to go in the wrong direction. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting at a table, whether it's an actual table or a theoretical table with, uh, you know, Ron Castile and Michael Cord and having that very interesting conversation. That is going to be an interesting conversation, those two. Yeah. So if you look at this list, for example, you'll see Movita Johnson Harrell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Movita is the daughter of someone who was murdered, and she is the mother of someone who was murdered. And she runs an organization in her son's Charles, name, the Charles, yeah, Charles Foundation. Foundation. Someone like her is invaluable. But that is just one example. We have an ex-police commissioner who mm-hmm. understands that... The Sylvester law, Johnson, yeah. And Sylvester mm-hmm. Johnson, who understands that law enforcement has to come from the grassroots. We have Elizabeth Holtzman, who was is kind of an icon of progressive prosecutors from the 1980s. Carolyn Temin, who is a retired judge whose distinguished career includes being a prosecutor and a defense attorney and a trial judge in Philadelphia. We even have business people like Jeff Brown who are dedicated to Mm reentry and to mentoring of people who are at risk or coming out of incarceration. We have Pat Pierce, the former president of... Uh, or executive director, I think, of Women Organized Against Rape, also an employment Mm -hmm. expert and attorney in that field to make sure we don't get off course in terms of personnel and in terms of, uh, you know, avoiding discriminatory behaviors. And we have people like Maria Quinona Sanchez and Marion Tasco who are in their own way icons as elected officials. Yeah. So you have it all covered. And so I'm going to have a couple more questions and then uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, I do want to ask you about um, the Conviction Integrity Unit. Um, what is your vision for that? Because there's a lot of cases there with um, some some wrongful convictions may have happened. I don't know. What is your view on that? Um, it's had some movement, um, but are you dedicated to that? I am uh, extremely dedicated to that. It's, I think, an essential issue. Because you have to do justice moving forward, but you also have to do justice moving backwards. And everybody forgets that an innocent person sitting in jail means the guilty person went free Mm -hmm. for that crime. Mm -hmm. So we have to be as careful as we can about not having innocent people sitting in jail and not having cases that never should have been closed be closed. And my last two questions for you. First of all, what challenges you, keeps you up at night about taking on this role? What a great question. Let's just keep being direct and honest. That seems to work out pretty well. What concerns me is getting the very best people Mm. and being as fair and careful as possible with personnel decisions. You know, we have had a DA who wasn't fair. We've had a few of them who weren't fair. They were just political. That's the last thing that this movement wants to be. This movement wants to be really fair. And that means fair to the individuals in the office. It means fair to everybody involved in the criminal justice system. It's a hard thing to do. And my last question to you is what excites you the most? Change is exciting. Movements work. They are exciting. And I'm extremely excited about the possibility that not only did we do the unthinkable in winning the primary and then do the unthinkable even more by winning the general with more votes than any district attorney has gotten in at least 20 years, 
But maybe we're going to again do the unthinkable and be extremely successful in achieving this agenda and proving that safety and justice actually go together. DA-elect Larry Krasner, thank you for being on Flashpoint. Thank you, Chair. Next up, December 1st was World AIDS Day, and a Philadelphia group is using a two-pronged approach to target the most vulnerable. You're more likely to be infected by someone if you live in one of those areas. Their effort and the current need in the HIV community coming up. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week, it's all about Babashi Transition to Hope, the nation's first organization to address the impact of HIV in urban communities of color, especially among African Americans. Fast forward, and today, people of color are still disproportionately impacted by HIV and AIDS. Luckily, Babashi isn't stopping. I'm here with Executive Director Gary Bell who's here in the KYW studios. Thank you so much for being here. So lots of work being done this week, considering it's World AIDS Day on December 1st. World AIDS Day is unfortunately the only day that we really focus on HIV. HIV gets kind of lost in sauces. They say we forget about it, even though it's continuing to wreak havoc, especially on communities of color. When it first started in the 80s, it was a death sentence. These days, people are surviving. So for a lot of folks, they don't even think about HIV and AIDS as anything to be worried about. But that's not true. That's not true. I'm a little bit of a dinosaur. I was around in those 80s, and I know what it was like. We only had one medication, actually, that turned out really didn't slow down HIV, and that was ACT. But people were you know, really just dying very quickly, sometimes three to six months after they they were tested. And now we have a whole cadre of medications. So the challenge now is not so much to treat folks, it's to get them tested because 40% of the new infections are from people who did not know they were HIV positive and still one in five don't know. Now what we have to do is get people tested and get them into care. And so that's what you guys did on World AIDS Day. You went down, you had multiple locations where people could get tested. Well, I mean, we have multiple locations every day. We're yeah. all over the city. But on World AIDS Day, we really fed out to try to get as many people tested as we can. And that's what we did on World AIDS Day. Why is it that people of color still are disproportionately impacted? Well, I think it has a lot to do with two things. One is poverty. You know, Philadelphia is the poorest, large city in the United States. And poverty is very segregated. Okay, people live in certain neighborhoods, mostly north, south, west, and west. And there's no coincidence that the highest incidence of HIV are in those districts. So you have poor people who have less access to health care, employment, poverty has many offspring, homelessness, substance abuse, domestic violence, and so forth. So you have folks congregated in those areas, and you're more likely to be infected by someone if you live in one of those areas because you're more likely to come in contact with someone who's affected. Black men within the LGBT community, they're uh, very vulnerable. Young black and brown LGBT men are the fastest growing group of people who are becoming infected. They are most at risk. And HIV has just gotten younger in general, about a quarter of the new infections on people between the ages of 13 and 24. Tell me some of the wins that you've seen Mm -hmm. that have helped communities of color when it battled Mm -hmm. this epidemic. Well, probably one of the greatest wins, women who are pregnant, transmitting 
um, HIV to their unborn child has really, that has been really a success story. And the medications are really a godsend. We really can keep people alive a long time and keep them relatively healthy. The problem is a lot of those folks are poor, and that means we have to find them housing, we have to find them food, and we and sometimes they're well enough to find it, you know, to, to be able to work. And so now we're looking for work for them. Before, we didn't worry about those things. We just tried to keep them alive. So we spent a lot of time at Babashi with our case managers just trying to get them in a stable situation. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, you know, most folks don't even think about HIV and, and AIDS. They just, you know, they get tested annually, like I do, as mm-hmm. part of my checkup. Do you think if you're out there, if you're dating, you just use protection, right? Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, now with the opioid epidemic. It is becoming an issue as well. We have seen these outbreaks of um, HIV and hepatitis C um, all around the country. What you could see is how quickly HIV could just explode. We've seen it in West Virginia. They've actually had some outbreaks in Montana, in those kind of communities. Because and you would think that, I mean, that it can happen there. It can definitely yes. happen in a city. Yeah, and, and, and that's something we're monitoring closely because we have the, the cheapest, purest heroin um, in the country, and we're really looking very closely at you know, and I don't want to say waiting for it, but we're really concerned that it's going to blow up again, you know, especially in areas like Kensington and so forth. You guys have been around for 32 years now. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank a lot you. of folks don't make it 32 years. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things that we don't do for 32 years. And so you'll be celebrating uh, with a gala. And, and I've heard that the Babashi Gala is, is a place to go. We want to make ours fun. So we have entertainment this year. We're going to have Kelly Price. And then we, we tie it all up with Gary O, a, a well-known DJ around the city. So after all the talking is done, after the awards are given, we have fun. We party. The majority of the money raised mm-hmm. will go to help Abashi continue its mission. That's why we do it. So where can people get tickets? The quickest way is to go to our website, uh, www.babashi.org, and there's a link a link to buying tickets. You can also look on our Facebook page. There's also a link there. Thank you so much to Gary Bell for being here and for keeping the the torch going with Babashi because it's so, so needed today in battling HIV and AIDS. And thank you for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. And if you could, take a second and rate our show and provide a comment under reviews. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As author Dan Millman once wrote, the secret of change is to focus your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.